Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Today I'm going to be talking to Matt Farrell, who is the creator of the Still To Be Determined podcast and the popular YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which has 1.1 billion subscribers. And you will know, or if you can guess, that I'm very jealous of that because the uh, Energy Media uh, YouTube channel has just approaching 5,000 subscribers. So I'm going to ask Matt for some tips on how I might be able to boost those numbers. But welcome to the interview, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, let's start with, uh, I don't know how familiar Canadian uh, listeners will be with your podcast and with your YouTube channel. Give us a little introduction to the kind of work that you do on those. Well, I basically explore all different kinds of sustainable technologies. One, because I'm fascinated by technology, and the other aspect is I'm trying to live with some of this stuff and experience it firsthand and talk about some of those experiences. So I talk about everything from solar panels to EVs to heat pumps for your home to different energy storage tech and what's coming out down the road, what might be impacting these things in the future. So it's it's just the fascination about that and how it can impact our, our daily lives. Well, I have to say, I watched some of your videos and they're very well produced. Uh, so kudos to you. Thanks. And uh, maybe that has a lot to do with why you have 1.1 million subscribers. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> but what we're, what we're going to talk about today is the role of the home in the electrification of everything. And uh, regular listeners will know that I am of the firm belief that somewhere down the road uh, this century, probably between, if I were to, to guess, between 2050 and 2075, we will have mostly replaced coal, oil, and natural gas as our primary energy sources and replaced it with clean electricity and sustainable fuels like hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuels. And we're already seeing that process uh, underway, and particularly in the U.S. The, the amount of, uh, and again, this is a frequent theme for me, so uh, the amount of innovation and disruption that's taking place in the American power sector is truly astonishing. Uh, the pace at which it's taking place, the uh, speed with which the uh, American power grid is being uh, modernized, uh, distributed energy resources are being installed, uh, new technologies are being developed and tested and, and adopted. It, it really is uh, something to watch from this side of the border because Canada is not anywhere close to that right now. Would you agree that it really is kind of a revolution or transformation of the American power sector we're seeing? Oh, a massive upheaval. It's changing completely. Uh, it, we're right at the beginning of it. It's just like, I think your estimate is spot on, you know, 2050, 2075. We're at the beginning of that kind of like hockey stick adoption growth right now of what's playing out. Yeah, I, I would agree. And the another thing, I happened to watch one of your 
uh, videos about batteries, battery technology, which is something mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very keen on. And, and the amount of innovation that's going on in the battery sector is, I don't think we, it's even when you pay attention to it, it's hard to grasp the magnitude of the change that are coming. So many more uh, electrochemistries, so many more related technologies. We, we forget enabling technologies like artificial intelligence, as an example. Um, oh, yeah. You know, all of those things are, are contributing to the pace at which the technologies come to market and which they're adopted. And one of, and, and this is maybe a good way to, to segue into our, uh, our topic for conversation today, is we think of batteries today as lithium ion, the mm -hmm. nickel, magnesium, NMC. And in fact, there are a number of other battery technologies coming out designed specifically for stationary storage and uh, will, that'll have application for homes like zinc ion. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I interviewed a Canadian entrepreneur who's, whose company from Halifax of all places, uh, who whose uh, zinc ion batteries, they'll be coming to market, uh, I think this year. And he said, you know, basically this, the same performance you know, characteristics as lithium ion, but 30% less expensive. Uh, but too heavy for for EVs. I mean, they're they're yeah. you know they need they're really out, uh, the application here is stationary, and that's just one edit. You know, there's sodium ion and liquid metal and, and salt. Uh, I, I I just it'd be a long long list if we talked about all of them. <laughs> yeah. But what about what about battery storage for homes? Yeah, that's that's a changing market. There's some interesting stuff on there that's coming up that you, you probably have heard of, like redox flow batteries. Those are like, you think of those as grid scale energy storage systems, but there are companies that are trying to bring those to market for homes and they're the size of a refrigerator and you'd put it outside your house and it would provide you way more energy storage than you might need. And it will last for decades, like 30 years. And so it's like this incredibly long lifespan, cycle life, just immensely like fantastic technology for homes. It's not here yet. It's about to get here, but like for stuff that's available now, I mean, you, you've still got, like you talked about the NMC, you've got LFP, which is, you know, iron uh, batteries. Uh, there's different technologies already available that have excellent cycle lives. And the adoption of these kind of home technology batteries available today can provide profound impact, not just for the home, but for the local community too, which is something I'm very excited about. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was with an organization in Los Angeles. And we were talking uh, last fall mm -hmm. about how battery storage uh, had contributed to California not having any uh, blackouts uh, this, this past summer. And, and she was saying that her organization provides virtual power plants for uh, apartment buildings and condo buildings. And so they, they provide storage, but they're also able to provide demand management. Mm -hmm. So when, when the grid is overloaded, uh, they can, for example, uh, they can lower the, uh, they can adjust the HVAC so they can lower air conditioning in the summertime, uh, right down to the individual unit. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the amount of control, uh, that's available now is, is nothing short of astonishing. And so when the utilities send out, I mean, now it's pretty crude, right? I mean, they send out a text, please don't, you know, use less electricity. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, and that it worked, you know, mm -hmm. people, people like the, my, my interviewee, you know, they, they took action and a lot of people took action. Mm -hmm. And so it worked, but the sophistication that's coming mm -hmm. so that the, the utilities will be able to sync up either control directly or sync up and coordinate 
with these other virtual power plants and God knows what other technology we're going to come up with is is nothing short of revolutionary. Yeah. In my house, I'm actually participating in a virtual power plant system in my current house. Um, I have a Tesla Powerwall that um, I enrolled in the program here in Massachusetts. And during the summertime, it's a span of about four months, they can, they can use my battery up to, I think it's 60 times over the course of that four-month span. And it usually is in the evenings when people come home from work, the energy spikes in the evening. So when they're trying to curtail that, do some peat shaving, um, I'll, sometimes I don't notice, notice it's happening. It's like they'll just start to siphon off some of my battery. Sometimes they'll charge it up to 100% leading up to the event to make sure that they have as much energy in my battery as they can get. And I'm participating in a program where I think there's another, basically there's a thousand people or so on this program. So it's like a big, massive distributed battery. And we have saved megawatts. We've shaved megawatts. I, I reached out to the program to get kind of like an assessment of like, how was it this year? How was it this year? They keep giving me the information. And it's really impressive how it's growing and how much of an impact it's having on the entire community. And it's my battery in my my basement. <laughs> so it's, it's fantastic that my house can contribute like that in a way that I don't have to lift a finger. It's just happening in the background. It's all of a managed system, all done through software with Tesla and other participants. So it's it's for a, for a homeowner, it's nothing. But at the same time, my program is I had to buy a battery, install a battery, where like some of the programs you're talking about, I think are even more exciting is when they provide the battery. They basically say, hey, are you willing to allow us to install this battery in your home? And then you get the benefit of having the battery in your home and we can tap into this battery when we need it. There are programs like that that are springing up in different locations. I believe there's one in Vermont that's like that. That to me is the most exciting because then the, the utility doesn't have to find places to build the battery systems. They don't have to get special permitting to like build this massive battery farm. It's like they're just taking advantage of the homes that are already on the grid and just tap into an existing infrastructure. It's very clever, low cost, high benefit. It's, it's great. I, I often say that uh, an underappreciated innovation is business models. Yeah. And that's, I think that's particularly true, you know, energy as a service business models, and this would be one of those. Yeah. And, but I have a question for you because you're in this program. Mm -hmm. Are you concerned at all about the effect of uh, this, you know, demand management by the utility on the life of your battery? Do you think you'll lose cycles uh, out of the battery, out of your battery life? And if, if so, do they, you know, promise to compensate you for that in some way? I am concerned about that. I actually talked to a few different um, installers about that, like what they had seen. And they were like, they told me point blank, yes, this is going to hammer your battery. It's going to shorten its life by several years. But then you have to equate, like, what do you get out of it? And for me, where I am, I get paid. So I get, um, it depends on how many kilowatts, not kilowatt hours, but kilowatts, the continuous throughput I'm able to deliver from my house. They calculate the average kilowatts I was able to contribute over the course of the entire summer and they pay me a fixed amount of money per kilowatt. So each year I've gotten a check cut at the end of the year for like, it's like 800 bucks, just shy of $800. That's, so yeah. the program, yeah, the program for me will run for five years. So in five years, maybe I'll get $4,000. That's a nice chunk of change off of the cost of a battery and home batteries are still very expensive right now. So something like this is a nice incentive to participate in a program like it because it does help to defray the cost of the battery itself. So for me, that equation of, yeah, it's shaving off a couple of years off the life of the battery versus helping it to finance itself. Um, I, I made that equation, made that call. It's like, I felt like a good decision to me to, to participate in it. 
Sure, and that calculation is only going to get better over time as batteries drop in price and energy density goes up, and 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 other, and other forms of battery come on stream. Uh, I had I wasn't aware that flow batteries were available or soon going to be available yeah. for homes. That's kind of exciting, and yeah, and uh, and then there of course there are other batteries that are coming like like sodium ion. One of the advantages is I mean, you can get you know five thousand cycles up out of a battery. You know, and and apparently the one I was looking at because the sodium ion is good, is is starting to show up in or soon will show up in Chinese EVs, is you get five thousand uh, cycles uh, now, but in a year or two you're gonna have ten thousand. Mm-hmm. Now how long is how long will that battery last? I mean, it'll you know it'll last longer than you will. Yes, it will. When you get into those numbers, it's kind of like it's my mind starts to melt because it's like okay <laughs> that that means the car is gonna last longer than me. I'll be I'll be dead before <laughs> you'd have to change the battery on that car. Which is incredible. Um, I, I can't wait for that technology to arrive. But there's a point at which where it's kind of like, I don't know, diminishing returns. It's like, okay, you've just made a battery that's not going to last just my life, but the next person's life. <laughs> it's like, how long do these cars have to last? Yeah, it'll be one of those assets that you pass down through generations. You know, you you'll leave it to your kids. Your kids will leave it to their kids. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Well, look, uh, what about um, uh, since we're talking about you know demand management and so on, what about automated smart homes? Uh, with a lot of automated features to them. Um, again, this is something I'm not all that familiar with, but I'm I'm curious to learn. What what can you tell us about that? Um, I'm endlessly fascinated by smart homes, and I know a lot of people are concerned about privacy, but there are smart home technologies that are local you control, so you don't have to worry about privacy. But once you have all of your devices able to start to talk to each other, they can start to coordinate and automate things in a way that you could never do as the homeowner. So it's like. If you have a smart electric panel, like I have something called a span smart panel, um, you can start to tie that into things in your home. It's not just telling you how many kilowatts you're using and where it's going. It's also able to react on the fly. So let's say the grid goes down. My span smart panel knows how much energy is left in my battery. It knows exactly what I'm using and it can have kind of like uh, shaved like uh, energy use over time to try to lengthen the life of the battery as long as possible. So if it's over 75% full, I can keep using my house as normal. If it gets to 50%, it can turn off unnecessary circuits automatically. If it gets down to 30%, it drops even more down to the base essentials. So it can really kind of like be adaptive. And systems like this can also detect uh, fluctuations in electric in, uh, the electrical signals that like your refrigerator gives off, compressors give off. There's kind of, you can detect the running of that object through the electricity they can detect if motors are failing. And so they can actually warn you ahead of time. If it looks like your compressor is about to go, you might want to call for service. Um, there's, being able to tell light switches in your home, nobody's in this room automatically turn it off. It's like the ba- basically having the home be able to communicate among itself. It's For me, smart homes is not about the whiz-bang, oh, I can pull up my smartphone and turn my lights green. It's like, who cares about that? It's It's more about you set up systems where... The smart panel can talk to your thermostat, which can talk to your home battery and your solar panels and your EV charger. So your car's only charging when there's excess solar being made from your rooftop. So you can really maximize how your house is using its energy to save you money, uh, to lengthen the life of your your system. So it's there's so many benefits to smart homes. It's kind of endless. I, I see a huge amount of potential there. And a lot of it comes from AI, machine learning, automations and things like that. Energy Media has a client, a, a Cure Battery uh, Intelligence out of Germany. Mm-hmm. And 
they make they have a, a cloud-based platform that monitors battery performance. And in Germany, they have I think sixty-five or seventy thousand homes in Berlin that are on this system. They have the Berlin uh, Transit Authority and their electric buses. They have corporate clients. And the point that they make to me is the you know, because there still is some some concern around the safety of lithium-ion batteries, right? I mean, you know, if you have a thermal uh, event your battery could catch on fire and maybe your home could catch on fire. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's very rare, but nevertheless, people worry about this. But those kinds of systems uh, can uh, detect long before you have a thermal event. I mean, literally days. They mm -hmm. can detect that there's an anomaly in your battery. You know, right. a, some, a cell is not is malfunctioning somehow. It's I, I don't know the details of it. And, and then corrective action can be taken. And it's it seems like you know that your the panel you just dis, uh, described the smart panel mm -hmm. can do that 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 very thing it'll monitor the battery's health and and be able to let you know or take corrective action uh, if in fact there is something anomalous that, that goes on and and you know where your how your home is in danger. I mean yeah. the, the as as you say the applications for this are endless. Yes, I mean some of these features are it's kind of the beauty of your software features like this can be rolled out over time. So like there's different like sense, there's a product called sense that you can add on to any kind of dumb electric panel and it will allow you to see your energy use and it can detect different devices on the system. And that's one of the ones that I was mentioning that can detect like if a motor's dying. Um, these kind of features can be tested and rolled out without having to buy a new piece of hardware. So once you have some of these systems in your home, new features get rolled out six months, a year, two years later, you'll find that it becomes more and more productive over time, which is another exciting feature of these kind of devices. Now, you're in Massachusetts, with, which is, is uh, as I understand it, is a fairly, we're going to call it progressive yeah. state in terms of, you know, regulating, uh, yeah. adopting these kinds of technologies, uh, putting in place the regulatory regimes that are required, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Not all states are like that. No. You know, we just saw Wyoming. Why Wyoming is either passing or has already passed laws that like outlaw electric vehicles, which is just the silliest damn thing I've I've ever heard. But nevertheless, that's Wyoming, right? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a little story. Back back in another life, when I when I worked for five years in the oil and gas industry, I, I occasionally had to be in Wyoming, and it was how can I put this? Just a little backward. I remember one. I, I remember one fellow that I was talking to. Said, you know, you 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 put sensors down wells. You know, hundreds of feet or thousands of feet down a well bore, because you want to know what temperature and pressure and so on. And you make decisions based on that. Mm -hmm. And they were they were there was they were so cheap in Wyoming. They would literally take extension cords, right? And they would and they would manually feed them down the well bore. Because you know they could only afford a few bucks for a sensor and an extension, I, you know. So whenever I think of Wyoming, I think, oh, of course, but you know, <laughs> of course, Wyoming would be the state to outlaw electric vehicles, right? <laughs> I've never been, so I can't speak <laughs> firsthand. Okay, so anybody from Wyoming, you know, we love you, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You know where I'm going with this. Look, uh, what about vehicle to grid storage? Because I keep telling the story about the the podcast I was listening to where Ford CEO Jim Farley was on uh, talking about the Lightning, uh, F-150 Lightning. And oh, he yeah. said the one, number one reason that people tell Ford that they're buying, they want to buy a Lightning is the vehicle to grid uh, integration. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they they a lot of grids have become unstable uh, for climate change and other reasons, and and so they want to make sure that they can plug their their truck into their house and and maintain and have electricity uh, in the event of a, a storm or whatever, and and so. Where is vehicle to grid integration uh, at right now? Uh, it's sadly, it feels like it's kind of stalled, at least here in the U.S. It feels like because there aren't many like vehicle to grid EV chargers that you can get for your home yet. There, there are some, but there's very few. I think there's like one or two. Um, it, it's a technology that has so much potential because like I have a Tesla power wall. I have something like, let's say, 10 kilowatt hours strapped to my wall of my garage. And then my Tesla Model 3 has something like a 60 kilowatt hour battery in it. And it's kind of insane that I can't plug that into my house. There was a blackout because that thing would let my house run for days without having to be recharged. Yeah. It's just absolutely massive. And the fact that we haven't adopted it yet, um, it, it feels like we're right on the cusp of that happening. And the fact that we're seeing more and more EVs, at least here in the US, come out that support vehicle to grid or vehicle to home. It shows that there is a, an interest there that they're trying to address. Um, but it's funny that Tesla, the largest manufacturer of EVs right now, still doesn't doesn't support it. Uh, an observation from an interview I did recently, where we talked about this, and the expert I was interviewing said that you know some people are worried, just as you are with your Tesla Powerwall, you know mm-hmm. that the, you're going to lose uh, life of the battery because you can cycle. And he said that that's probably true. If you go, you know, charge it up to 100%, yes. discharge it to 0%, yep. he said, but, but if all you do is is charge it to 75% and discharge it to 25%, as an example, yep. it's, it's, not, it, it's not counted as a cycle. Yeah. And, yes. and so then, you know, effectively by, smart, by smartly managing that, that uh, with, you know, the, dis, the charging and discharging, then in fact, your battery life is not it. Is not effective. Yeah. The car's battery is so large, you're not going to have to charge it to 100% and discharge it to 0% for your house. For for driving it, it uses way more energy. But for your home, your house doesn't use that much. So it's like you could go for days and maybe only tap 30% of the battery. So it's it, it's not a thing to worry about when it comes to cars um, for a vehicle to grid. The challenge, though, comes... Are you going to remember to plug it in every day when you get home? Are you going to remember to do that every single time? Um, there are technologies that can, like, I don't know if you know much about w- wireless EV charging. A little bit, actually. Yeah. Surprise, I surprise both of us, but yes, I do. <laughs> There's a company here in Massachusetts called Whitricity that has a system where it's like, for me, I, I'm really bullish on that idea because it's like, imagine having a wireless charging pad in your garage. You pull in, you don't have to remember to plug it in. It's just, it's pulled in. It can top itself up to 80% if it needs to. It can be used for vehicle to grid if it needs to. And there's no wires. There's nothing to remember. It just kind of happens on its own. It's like there's a lot of potential there for a user experience in the house and being able to participate with the grid. Oh, just wait. I, I, I'm i I'm convinced that that's going to be the, the norm in, you know, like parking lots. For yeah. instance, if you have a parking oh, yeah. structure and, and you go to work, you you, you pull over the, the pad and the, the car communicates with the, with the pad and it has, you know, access to your credit card. And it charges up to whatever you've set as, as the limit, a 75, 80, 100 percent, whatever it is. And same thing at the mall, same thing, you know, and, and your car just charges when it needs to, when it has access to the to the transceiver. And uh, it's I mean, it's just too brilliant not to do, right? 
yeah, there's going to come a point where it's like you're not going to think about having to charge your car because it's topping right. up at the grocery store, it's topping up at the mall, it's topping up at your house at work. So it's like it's just always kind of charged up to to 80% or whatever you set it to. And it just always seems to be there because you're topping up everywhere you go. It's like I, you can see that as the future of where this is going. Well, speaking of the future, uh, I've been doing this for a while. And, and I remember, you know, 20, 2016, 2017, and I would be interviewing, uh, you know, analysts, EV analysts. In fact, right. one of them was located in Boston. And I remember him telling me, he said, well, you know, we think we're going to pass the inflection point on the S curve on, you know, the adoption S curve, you know, which would be like five, six, 7% of, of new sales. We think about like 2032, 2033. <laughs> and I go, okay, that's kind of cool. Then along about 2017, 2018, I'm thinking, you don't know, there's something in the air here. I can feel this energy transition accelerating. This, this, this you know, and then by 2018, 2019, I like it, it, it was already like somebody had their, you know, their uh, pedal to the metal. Yeah. And then and then you have the COVID shock and it speeds up more. And then you have Russia's invasion of Ukraine and it, that just sends it into overdrive. You know, and now, I mean, when did we put, when was the inflection point? 2020, 2021? Yeah. So more than a decade ahead of time. So I think that a lot of the stuff that we, that we're talking about, you know, oh, we'll have solid state batteries in 2028 next year. <laughs> you know, everything is just, is coming so much faster. It's like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Oh, no, guys like guys like you and I can can't keep up. No, no, no. It's, it makes my head spin. Like when you're talking about batteries, it's like it feels like every week there's another battery advancement or a report about like, here's the report of how we're doing on this kind of battery. And you're like, I didn't realize that was even a thing. It's like it's there's just so many that keep coming out like that. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And of course, you know, as an energy journalist, I subscribe to all sorts of you know newsletters and <laughs> and uh, press release uh, update that kind of stuff. And my inbox is just, has just exploded in the last six to twelve months, and yeah. it's a I, I spend I don't want to think about how many hours a day I spend reading and pruning my my inbox <laughs> so that it doesn't you know get out of control. Well, it is out of control, but so we've we've talked about uh, well, hang on a second. We don't we haven't talked about, and that's power generation. We've we've mentioned solar panels in passing. Mm-hmm. Well, what can you tell us about advances that are coming on for rooftop solar? Oh, for rooftop solar, I mean, like the big one that everybody's kind of like obsessed with is solar shingles, things that look like solar tiles. Um, I think that is going to be the future, but I also feel like that's not necessary. It's like, it's like this, the technology is already there and there's so many people that prefer just solar in any form they can get it. I don't think that's going to be a big thing that will hold it back. But there's a lot of interesting technologies coming for rooftop solar. Like um, I actually just talked about one recently about how solar panels use silver um, in pretty much all different kinds of solar panels, and that's going to become a problem eventually. And so there are companies that are trying to transition to copper, which has some benefits of a slightly better efficiency. And there's other companies trying to do perovskite solar cells. But for right now, there's so many different options that you can have. You can achieve whatever your goal is. There's some method that you can try to achieve that goal um, available on the market today. You don't even have to wait a few years to get what what you need. Well, what, what's your take on perovskite? Because, I mean, that's, uh, for those who yeah. aren't familiar with it, it's kind of a, think of it as you could, like, you know, put a film on your window or paint on your, on your, uh, the exterior of your house and it would generate, it would generate yeah. electricity. And uh, it seems like in the last couple of years, there have been some major advances. It's getting close to commercialization is, is my take on it, as sort of that what it feels to me. What, yeah. What's your take? 
it, it does feel like it's getting closer, but it also feels a little like that solid state kind of thing. It's like, it's always being promised and hyped. It's like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then there's always something that happens that seems to slow it down. So it's like, I'm being a little more cautious about Profskites. It would surprise me if it gets here in a couple of years. I still feel like it's further away than that, mainly because it doesn't seem to quite have the longevity of silicon panels. And so because of that, I think it's going to have a harder time making a case for itself. But because they're so much cheaper, like dramatically cheaper to make, I think when they do finally hit the market, it's going to be like a flood. <laughs> it finally does come. Well, Matt, this is this fascinating conversation. And let's, let's wrap it up. Uh, if you could give us three of your best guesses for where uh, home energy technologies are going in mm -hmm. the next two to five years, I'd be curious to know what you think. Well, the first thing would be more impressive energy storage tech. Like I brought up that Redox Flow battery. I think we're going to have home battery storage. We're going to see prices drop over the next five to 10 years where it can then be adopted into way more homes. We might see more programs where they offer to give you the battery in exchange for being able to use it. So we're going to see a lot more virtual power plants just springing up all over the place because they're proving to work and be of high value to utilities. So I think that's a big one in the next five to 10 years. Um, Another big one would just be just the cost of solar, getting solar in your home, uh, being able to afford it or work out deals with utilities or community solar programs to be able to take advantage of where your electricity is coming from and having more control over that. Uh, that would probably be the second one. And the third one would be, I, I think the big one is probably smart technologies that are going to link all these things together. The machine learning, being able to link these things together to really take advantage of them, I think is where it's, it's going to be like an orchestra. Instead of like one person playing a good guitar, it's going to be a whole orchestra playing because the, the smart home tech can really make things sing in a way that they can't by themselves. Well, while you were talking, I thought of another thing that we should have talked <laughs> about and we didn't talk about, and that's microgrids. I'm very curious, and I guess this kind of, it, this ties in with virtual power plants, but it's really not the same thing. Yep. And it occurs to me that uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So I, I live in British Columbia. 97% of our power comes from hydro. Mm -hmm. We've got 31 or 32 hydro dams. Legacy dams, they produce electricity for, you know, like pennies for, mm -hmm. per kilowatt hour, which is great. We're building one more, highly controversial. It'll be the last one that BC ever builds. And at some point, you know, by 2050, we're going to have, we're going to need two to three times as much electricity as, as we do now. So where's that electricity going to come from? And it seems to me that local energy generation, uh, and in fact, I should, just as an aside, the community that I live in and it's and the region in which we live in, the regional government that, that uh, is responsible, are embarking on a local energy uh, strategy. They're going to do some mm -hmm. consulting and research and figure out how we can do that. Microgrids could play a role in there. They could, oh, yeah. and... Yeah. And it seems to me that they could they could work in conjunction with the, the the existing power grid, and and so that the as as uh, demand grows and as the need for more generation grows, that the the utility doesn't have to do everything. It doesn't have to build every you know megawatt hour of or megawatt of generating capacity. It it can work with communities. It can work with with big industrial players and commercial businesses that sort of thing all around microgrids and self-generation. Uh, yep. What's your what's your take on that? Well, for me, community solar is a key aspect of that. We don't see a lot of it. It's It feels like it's just starting to kind of gain a little traction. 
but there's so many people that I hear from, like, I'd love to get solar, but I rent, or I want to get solar, but it's too expensive. And it's like, well, there's a community solar project in your area that you can buy into. And then, you know, a hundred homes are going to be getting their power from that, that small little microgrid that's being set up in conjunction with the utilities. So it's not like they're trying to go off grid. It's, it's being participating as part of the grid, but it's community focused. Those I think have probably the biggest potential as this need grows because it satisfies everybody. It doesn't, it's like, it has nothing to do with how much money you make or if you can afford to put them on your own house. It's about the community itself. And that's where I think we're going to see a really huge uptake in the next decade is in that area. That's fascinating. I, I, I can't wait. In fact, you know, I, I'm, it's unlikely we'd ever put, uh, ever put uh, rooftop solar on our, uh, our home here because, you know, we're on the West Coast, right? It's kind mm -hmm. of rainy in the wintertime and, and so on. But I, I can see community solar maybe catching on, and uh, and we would we would probably participate in that. So that that's very cool. That's good. That's a great trend. Well, Matt, thank you very much for this. Really enjoyed this conversation, and we will check back with you periodically uh, for updates. Because I mean, you know, it seems like, well, and if we're talking about the speed of technology, I could talk to you next week. We'd have more <laughs> things to talk about. Yeah, no, so, I think. <laughs> thank you very thank much you. for this. Thank you very much.